Well, thank you, uh, Highland Community Church, and thank you, Scott, for that uh, warm welcome and the invitation to be here uh, with you today. Um, I think I've got a, a picture here of my family. As Scott mentioned, uh, my wife, Sonia, and I have uh, seven. We've been blessed with seven wonderful children. Uh, my oldest son there is Nehemiah. And then we have Evangeline, Athanasius, Hadessa, Perpetua, and then the little redhead in the polka dot dress. Her name is Sahara. She's born in the Sahara Desert. You'll hear a little bit about that. And then we have uh, Zateo, our one-year-old. And um, so, uh, as was mentioned, we uh, recently have transitioned into a mobilization role uh, with our mission agency. Um, and so one of the privileges that I have is the opportunity to uh, be able to go around and share from some of the things that the Lord has done uh, in our lives and in the lives of people that have been around us uh, working amongst the unreached, bringing the gospel to hard places. And uh, what I love to do is to come to churches and uh, see where you are at and join you in that place. Um, and so as I looked uh, back at last week's sermon and saw you guys are in the book of Acts, uh, I said, all right, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 3 then. Um, and so if you're wondering, uh, when Scott was saying the left boot of fellowship, uh, I ended up in a prison, uh, and uh, I was imprisoned for a while, and uh, we were kicked out. I had terrorists looking for me. Um, if I was preaching on a different passage about imprisonment, I'd share more about that. Um, but that is not the passage we are in today. So the title of today's message is, By Faith in His Name. And so my, my hope this morning is to not only, open up, uh, not only open up God's word and look what he has to say to us uh, today here um, from Acts chapter 3, but to also uh, open up and share some stories um, from overseas work in a way that I hope encourages you and challenges you to consider, uh, just like Scott was talking about, consider our brothers and sisters that are all around the world uh, and the things that they go through uh, in living for Christ. And so, um, for those of you that like an outline, uh, like kind of having an idea of where we're going to be heading, uh, this morning's outline, I'm going to be examining the two defining events which take place in Acts chapter 3. So we're going to look at these, uh, what I've highlighted as two defining events that take place in Acts chapter 3. Second, we're going to look at how these two events relate to one another and what links them together. And then finally, we'll close with a couple applications to consider for our lives in light of these truths in Acts chapter 3. And all along the way, I hope uh, to share a couple stories, a couple testimonies of uh, people uh, who are following Christ overseas. So the defining events of Acts chapter 3. Um, the first defining event that we can see in Acts chapter 3, and it's right at the beginning of Acts chapter 3, is the healing of the lame beggar. And so let's go there. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's go to Acts chapter 3, and we're going to read together verses 1 through 10 to look at that first defining event. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. 
seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So we can see in this first uh, defining event how it was that this lame beggar was healed and how Peter and John interacted with him. I want to pull out three, uh, three aspects of this event. Uh, one of them is that Peter and John, just like their master and savior, are concerned for the needs of the least of these. You know, I was thinking about this just this uh, past week. Our family, uh, we have family worship together each, uh, each morning and evening. And in the evening, we were reading together. And uh, we were reading about Jesus going in, I believe it was Matthew 4. He was going around and healing people. And uh, it said he was healing people of, that, that had seizures. And one of our kids, you know, kind of raised their hand. They said, what's a seizure? And uh, so my wife, Sonia, uh, said to the kids, well, you know this, this family. And so we have these friends, and, and they have a young child with, with special needs. And just this past month, he had had a, uh, he had had a very bad seizure uh, in his bedroom. And so Sonia uh, shared with the kids about what that was like and, and what that was like to go through. And uh, as, as she was talking about that, I was preparing for this sermon, and, and I just thought about, you know, here's Peter and John, and in the midst of most societies... When we think about um, people with special needs, when we think about people who are, are downtrodden and, and people whose bodies are broken, uh, normally we don't see those people as very valuable because we often associate someone's value with how much they can give and how much they can contribute. And so if you don't have very much to contribute, you're not as valuable. You're not as worthy of our time and our attention. And yet here's Peter and John reminding us of just what Jesus did and challenging us. And so as I thought about this young, young child and, and this family that's modeling to us the love of Christ, I wonder how often they've cared for their young child with special needs and wondered who's, who else is going to care for this child that we love so much. Maybe some of you have family or friends around you, neighbors around you, that your, your heart, you love these people around you, but you wonder who else is going to take time for them? And the answer here is Jesus. Jesus cares about them. The church cares about them. And Peter and John are modeling that for us by taking time to, I love the way it says in this passage, gaze at him. 
They see this man who's begging. A lot of time when you grow up in, uh, and, you, and you spend time overseas and, and you're in these different places, you get so used to seeing people beg. There's just so many people who don't have work. It's not like here. The unemployment rate is much higher. People don't have jobs. They go out and beg. And you get so used to seeing them and forgetting that those are souls. Made in God's image. Well, the second thing I want you to notice is the variety of needs that are being seen in this interaction between the lame beggar and Peter and John. One of the needs we can see right away because the, the lame beggar is seeking this. The lame beggar, he, he sought money. He, he needed money to be able to provide for himself, to be able to, to get some food, to be able to get clothes. And so we see this need that's brought out because the lame beggar is asking Peter and John to provide for his needs. And yet, as Peter and John respond, they actually heal his infirmity, which is another need. And in healing that infirmity, I think they're actually meeting both of those needs. Because he now will be able to work and provide for himself. And at the same time, his whole life has been flipped upside down. He's now able to do things that he hasn't been able to do. They gave him something that he didn't even think to ask for. And yet the amazing thing in these two needs is that the lame beggar seeking money. Peter and John are healing his infirmity. And yet neither of those two things were his greatest need. Which was to be forgiven of his sins in order to be reconciled to God. And so there's a variety of needs that we see coming together as the lame beggar is healed. And finally, I want you to draw your attention that uh, of what happened as a result of uh, this lame beggar being healed. And it says that a large, a large crowd has gathered around upon witnessing this healing. God often uses interactions that his believers, his followers, have with those who don't know him to grab their attention and sometimes the attention of others that are around them. And so the Lord has done this with the lame beggar who is certainly attentive after being healed, but also the masses around who have known this lame beggar since birth. They've known as they've been at the temple. That's that guy that's always there begging. He's, been, he's being brought there daily to ask for his portion. So they've seen him day after day, month after month, year after year. And now all of a sudden, he's walking around, jumping, praising God. And so their attention's grabbed. And that leads us to the second defining event that occurs in Acts chapter 3. The second defining event of Acts chapter 3 is Peter speaks to the crowds. You might say Peter preaches a sermon. He takes this moment where all these people are gathered around to speak to them some words that are on his heart. And I don't have enough time this morning to, to read all of those words, but I just, I just want to focus on, on, on a few of those, and, and that's from verses 17 to 21. So uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. This is part of what he said to these crowds. 
And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. As we look at Peter's message to the lame beggar and to these crowds, he takes this opportunity where God has drawn in everyone's attention to speak about a greater need that they have. I'd like to again draw three things out of this second defining event. One is, in what he says to them, he clarifies, first of all, that God, by the name of Jesus, healed this man. It's funny because when you look at the verses immediately preceding the healing, uh, we can tell that the crowds really get this wrong uh, in what we hear from Peter's uh, first words to them. Because what he says to them at first is he says, stop staring at us and wondering at us as if we, by our might, have healed this man. So there, there must have been some assumption in the crowd that Peter and John had some kind of mystical power where they were able to uh, heal people with infirmities. And so that's, for the crowd, that's drawing a lot of attention towards Peter and John. So one of the first things that Peter and John take time to do is, is to set the record straight. To clarify for them that, no, no, we have not done this. But it is God, by the name of Jesus, who has done this. Secondly, he goes on to point out that this man, Jesus, by whose name God has restored health uh, to the lame beggar, that they rejected and killed him. The name by which this man was healed. And so Peter's going to cut right to the heart of the matter. He's going to use all their attention right now to say, you've got a problem. It's a problem that exists in the whole world. All of us have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have not done as God has called us to do. And here's the example crowd. You were all a part of this. He appointed his son, sent him to show us his love, and you rejected him. And as if it wasn't enough that you rejected him, you crucified him. And so he closes this second defining event, his sermon to all these people, by calling them to repent. So that they might attain salvation. So how are these two events. That occur in Acts chapter 3. How are they related? What links them together? 
the healing of the beggar, and Peter's speech to these crowds. How are they tied together? Well, I want to pull out a, a few things that I think link them together. First of all, notice that both of these events address real and important needs. You know, in the work that, that we do overseas, one of the mistakes that I think we make, and, and sadly I would have to confess, is that we see one need really clearly. I, I went to the nations because they need Jesus. They need to know who he is and what he has done so that they might have salvation. And so I knew that one thing. And I was going to the field so that people might know about their sins and what separates them from God and how Jesus can make a way for them to be reconciled with God. And yet the mistake that I was making, and I think that many of us make, that is exposed here in Acts chapter 3, is that people have real and important needs. This lame beggar, he wasn't standing at the temple door saying, I need to be forgiven of my sins. And we have people around us in our communities, our neighbors, our co-workers, who have real needs. Some of them have broken relationships. Some of them, their kids have gone wayward. Some of them have lost their jobs. And they want to know, does anybody care about the struggles that I have right now? And Jesus is saying through Peter and John right here, I care. I care about that need and I'm going to address that for you right now. And by the way, there's another need that I'd like to talk with you about as well. So these two events are tied together because they both exhibit real needs that exist. A need to be healed from an infirmity. A need to be reconciled to God for our sins. The way that Peter pulled these two things together. Secondly, Peter met the felt need of the beggar, which in turn gave him the opportunity to address the spiritual needs of many. Oftentimes, God is going to give us the opportunities in our places of work, in our neighborhoods. He's not put you there, brothers and sisters, by accident. There's a reason why we have the employment that we do. It's, it's not a random thing. God orchestrates these things. There's a reason why you're living in the neighborhood that you're living in. There's a reason why some of you have kids that are in the grades of, of families in this community. There's a reason why your kids play certain port, sports and other people's kids play certain sports. It's so that you would interact with those parents. There's a reason why you enjoy some of the hobbies that you enjoy. And it's because God is linking you up. He's putting you into contact with people who have needs. And God wants those people to know that he cares about those needs. Peter 
cared about this felt need of this beggar, met him where he was at, and in turn, God opened the door to speak to this greater need, the spiritual needs that existed for both this beggar and for the crowds that were around. Finally, I think the biggest link that I see in Acts chapter 3, it comes right in the middle of the passage, and it's this. Both the healing of the beggar and salvation from sins require faith in the name of Jesus. You can see it there in Acts chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what it says. This is Peter talking to the crowds now. He says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. You see, Peter makes clear for us that the link here, as he launches into this sermon, the link is that it's faith in Jesus that does all of these things. You're staring at John and I and you're wondering, how did we do this? It's, it's, it's not through us. It's through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And now let me tell you how through faith in his name, you might be reconciled to God. So that your sins no longer separate you. One of the questions that Sonia and I get asked most often uh, by people is, how do, you, how do you go about presenting your faith? I have, I have enough struggle uh, here in America, here in my community, with people that they, they know about Jesus. I mean, look around. We've got many churches in our community. You can attend a variety of them if you'd like. We've got so many versions of the Bible, you might get confused about which one's being read at church. And yet, I find it challenging to pull out, pull out that name of Jesus and share it with people at work. I can't imagine going across seas into another culture where people are 99.99% Muslims, diametrically opposed to what the Bible says, and figuring out how would I share my faith with them. And so I want to share a story that I think goes hand in hand with uh, what happened to Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 uh, as an illustration of just how God does this over and over in our lives. I have up here a picture of uh, uh, Sonia, and the woman to her right there uh, is a woman uh, named Ashta. Ashta's uh, our house helper in our village. And um, back in 2015, uh, we were expecting our sixth child. Uh, her name is Sahara. She was born in the Sahara Desert during a sandstorm, uh, so we gave her the name Sahara. And in this culture that we live amongst, uh, after a child is born, a week after, uh, they have a special celebration called a Samai. Uh, in Arabic, the word Samai means naming ceremony. And, uh, and so a week after, they invite everyone over, they have a feast together, and then they come out and announce the name of the child. And so, just like they do in their culture, we did the same thing with our family. After Sahara was born, a week later, 
we invited everyone in the community to come to our house. And people came from all around, all the surrounding villages. People parked their camels uh, at our gate. Everybody wanted to see the first white baby uh, that was born in our village. And so the men and I gathered on one side of the street. Uh, the women gathered along with Sonia on the other side of the street. We slaughtered a couple sheep, had some vegetables, and we ate together. And after a few hours of fellowship, uh, I came out and announced the name of our child. It was a wonderful celebration. Well, a few days after uh, this wonderful celebration, Sonia was sitting outside uh, with Ashta uh, doing the laundry. And uh, just so you have an understanding of what life is like over there a little bit, uh, we don't have electricity, uh, nor do we have running water. And so uh, what laundry looks like uh, in our village um, is uh, we basically have a plastic basin. Uh, we dump some water in that plastic basin, grab a bar of soap, rub it on our clothes, dunk it up and down, and that's how we wash our clothes. And so Sonia and Ashta were sitting outside doing that, and Ashta said to Sonia, Obviously reflecting upon uh, this celebration, she said to Sonia, she said, Sonia, why won't God give me children? And Sonia looked up from the clothes that she was washing, washing and she saw Ashta with tears coming down her cheeks. And out of concern said, what do you mean, Ashta? And she said, well, Sonia, for eight years, I haven't been able to have children. And I think my husband's going to divorce me. You see, in Islamic cultures, it's permissible for a Muslim man to divorce his wife if she does not produce children for him. And Sonia asked Ashta, she said, Ashta, have you, have you gone to see a doctor? Do you know why it is that you haven't been able to have kids? And she said, oh, Sonia, I've... I've gone to see an in-country doctor. I've gone to see Western doctors. I've even gone to see a local witch doctor. And none of them have been able to help me or explain to me why I haven't been able to have children. But I think I know why. Sonia said, why is that? She said, well, for 12 years, Sonia, every month I bleed like most women do but more so. And I don't understand all the reasons why, but I think it has something to do with that. And after they talked a little bit more about that, Sonia asked Ashta this question. She said, Ashta, have you ever read the Gospels? And Ashta said, no. And Sonia said, there's a story about a woman who has a problem that sounds very similar to what you're talking about. Can I tell you about what happened to this woman and what God did for her? And Ashta, all of a sudden excited, said, yeah. Now, in these cultures uh, that are oral storying cultures that Scott often goes, goes out to and, and helps to provide stories from God's word, most of them don't read. And so it was common for Ashta to say, no, I haven't read that because she doesn't read. And, uh, and so the way you share God's word with them is you share the stories repeatedly with them. And so what we do as a team and what Sonia did with Ashta is she shared the story with her three times and then went through a series of questions with her, all in the hopes that if Ashta would ever want to share that story with someone else, she would remember it well. And so after she got done sharing the story three times and asked her a number of different questions, one of the last questions she asked her was she said, Ashta, do you remember 
what it was that Jesus said was the reason for why this woman was healed. And Ashta thought for a moment, and she looked up and said, he said it was her faith. And Sonia said, that's right, Ashta. And in another place in God's word, it says that this faith comes from hearing and from hearing the word of God. Would you like to hear more of God's word with me and pray that God would give you this kind of faith? And Ashta said, yes. And if I had more time this morning, I'd dive into the things that God did in Ashta's life over the next year, but uh, our time is limited, and so I'll cut to the point for the sake of this. Over the next year, as Sonia and Ashta uh, read through God's word, uh, God started to give Ashta dreams and visions, and Ashta came to faith. And this is the amazing thing, brothers and sisters, <laughs> that God gives us the privilege of doing. I mean, who are we? That we should be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. That we should be His ambassadors to those that are around us to share of the hope that we can find in Christ. And yet this, Sonia, a fifth grade teacher from America. As far as we know, Ashta is the first female believer in the history of her people who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. Sonia gets to carry that with her, <laughs> that, 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 that honor of saying, this is what God gave me the opportunity to do. It's such an amazing privilege that God has given to us. I want to close uh, this morning's message with a couple of applications and then one final uh, story from the field for your encouragement. Uh, applications. Just a couple of questions here to leave these applications with you. First, are you leaving space in your life to interact with those in need? Are you willing to meet their felt needs and speak to their spiritual needs as the Lord leads? I want to challenge you this morning, Highland. I want to challenge you as you look at Peter and John, as you consider their interaction with the lame beggar and with these crowds, are you leaving this kind of space in your life to interact with those in need? Sadly, there was a time in my life, as in a Bible study together with a bunch of men, and, and, and we were asking a question almost identical to this. And I started taking stock of my life. I was teaching at a Christian school. I had a small group at church that I was attending. I was going to church on Sunday morning. And when I thought about the passage that we were studying as a small group, about Jesus calling us to be salt and light, one of the guys in the, in the small group Bible study really helpfully said to me, as I was giving stock of my life and what I was spending my time doing, he said, well, it sounds like you're hanging out with a lot of salt pellets. He was right. Oh, good and wonderful things. <laughs> but am I, was I leaving space in my life to interact with those who need Christ? Are you leaving that space in your life for the person who's at the door, for the person who's maybe in your neighborhood or at work that has a need?
Are you willing to give that time of your finances, of your concerns to help them? Finally, and maybe this is just part of those first two questions. Are you living by faith in the name of Jesus? If it's faith in the name of Jesus that has healed the lame beggar, if it's faith in the name of Jesus that brings salvation to all these crowds, to all that need to be reconciled to God, are you living by faith in that name? And I, I want to spread beyond here. I don't just mainly want to say, uh, are you living by faith in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins so that you would have salvation? Of course, all of us would say yes. But when we listen to James, the way that James talks about faith, when he says, there's faith in works, show me a man who has faith and I'll show you a man with works. There's a linking here. There's an overflow of the life of faith in the name of Jesus. And we see it here in Peter and John. Peter and John aren't just claiming a belief that they're reconciled to Christ. But out of the overflow of that faith, they are interacting with this lame beggar. They are hearing about his need. They are taking time. Whoa. Okay. Hopefully that stays there. Um, they are taking time to interact with him. Their faith in Jesus is pouring out into these acts of faith. One way that I've been challenged over the last several years, and I, I want to close with, with this, is, is by a young man who, I, I know there's a lot of you that have heard about him, you've been praying for him. Uh, his name's Mubarak. And, and I just want to share a little bit of his testimony as a way of hopefully just encouraging you. Um, I met Mubarak at one of these workshops that uh, uh, Scott uh, goes out and does. And, and uh, Mubarak was one of the people working to help craft stories into his, uh, his people's language. And uh, we meet over and over again uh, every few months to uh, tackle new stories and to craft them into their uh, native languages. And uh, so at the second workshop that we were together learning some new stories, uh, Mubarak pulled me aside and he said, uh, Yakub, which is my Arabic name, he said, Yakub, I have a problem. I said, what's your problem? He said, I love the word of God. But if my dad knew what I was doing in these workshops, there would be great problems for me. And so we started to talk about how he could continue to learn and study about the word of God that he loves so much uh, with the knowledge of the fact that if his family found out, it would bring great trouble for him. And we studied the word of God. He would come to my town to learn English. That's what he would tell his family. And then at night, he would come back to the house, almost like Nicodemus. Uh, he would come back to the house at, at night, and, and we would study the word of God together. And about six months later, Mubarak came to faith. And during that time, while, while we were reading the word of God, uh, we had been talking about what often happens with Muslims who come to faith in Christ? That there's almost this, uh, this reflex. You know, you go to the doctor's office and they hit your knee and, and without even controlling, your leg just kicks out. And, and there's this reflex that happens to Muslims when 
they come to faith in Christ, it's like they don't even realize it. Immediately, the first thing they do is figure out, how can I hide my faith? Because they know how dangerous it will be for them if people know that they've left Islam to follow Jesus. And so Mubarak and I had been talking about that. And so when he came to faith, one of the first things that I challenged him with that night is I said, Mubarak, over the next couple weeks, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to consider sharing your testimony, why it is that you're following Jesus with five people. I'm not asking you to go share it with a bunch of, you know, uh, people that would bring you harm. You can share it with uh, my family if you want. You can share it with others on the team. You can share it with some Christians that you know in your country, uh, whomever you please. I just want you to experience the joy that comes when you share your salvation with another. And so Mubarak did that. He shared his testimony with uh, five Christians and, and one Muslim that he knew. But the real fallout came weeks later. I got a call from Mubarak about a month later, and, and, uh, and he said, uh, Jacob, I think God wants me to tell my dad my testimony and why I'm following Jesus. And oh, me of little faith, uh, my immediate response was, are you sure? <laughs> because I knew what would happen most likely if he told his dad. And Mubarak explained to me, he said, Jacob, I think my dad is probably the most difficult person in my life to tell that I've left Islam and that I'm now following Jesus. But if I could trust God for the grace to tell my dad, then I think I'd be willing to tell anyone in the future. And so Mubarak did that. He called up his father. He told him, and it did not go well. Ever since that day, a couple years ago, Mubarak has been on the run for his life. His father has taken away his entire inheritance. He has nothing. He's lost every possession, everything that's important. The people, his family, his friends have all cut ties with him. In fact, his father and brothers were traveling from village to village, putting up wanted posters in the mosques, telling people, this is my son, he's a drunk. See, they can't tell him that he's left Islam because that would bring shame upon them. So instead they lie. They call him a drunk. They said he's run off. And if you've seen him, call us. We'll give you a reward. And so Mubarak is living in hiding with our family and, and with others. Well, finally, about a year and a half ago, we got a call from our team and found out that Mubarak had been abducted. While he was in the market, two of his cousins who knew that his father wanted him saw him. They threw a bag over his head, tied him up, and put him in a vehicle and drove off with him. Later that evening, when they got far enough away, they called the father. They said, we found Mubarak. What do you want us to do? And Mubarak listened to his father's voice over the phone. As his father said, if he's willing to return to Islam, bring him back to me. If not, kill him. Can you imagine listening to your own father calling for your execution? One of the cousins pulled out a gun, took it to Mubarak's head, said, Mubarak, will you return to Islam? 
mig dag så jag känner. Jesus has changed my life. And I will continue to follow him. By God's grace, the other cousin said, let's not kill him this way. And they beat Mubarak repeatedly to within inches of his life. They drove him up into the northern regions of this country where people often dispose of their enemies, where it's just desert, nobody lives up there. He was in chains and they threw him out to die. But by God's grace, there was an army patrol that was looking for smugglers who might be coming across the border. They saw the vehicle tracks, saw the foot tracks, followed them and found Mubarak laying in a heap in chains. And God preserved his life. He's now in another country. Uh, he has fled uh, for the sake of his safety and because there's just no reconciliation at all with his family. And even just six months ago, here it was, his cousins had taken pictures when they dropped him off. They were spreading these pictures saying, Mubarak is dead. This is what happens to kafirs. Kafir is an Arabic word for an unbeliever, an infidel. This is what happens to infidels. And Mubarak just happened to be a part of this chat group. Watching these pictures, that just brought tears to his eyes because he remembered what it was like and what, they had, what he felt like when they beat them. And Mubarak just couldn't sit there any longer as they were proclaiming these false things to others and scaring people. And so finally, he went into that chat group and in his own voice, in his mother tongue, recorded a message for that entire chat group. And he said, it's not true. I'm Mubarak. This is my voice. And I'm telling you that God has preserved my life because of my faith in Jesus Christ. And that if you believe in Jesus, God will do the same for you eternally. And as I've watched, you know, he's, he's like my, my son. And yet in other ways, he's like a father discipling me. Discipling us here this morning. So when I think about this question, are you living by faith in the name of Jesus? I almost have God challenge me saying, look at Mubarak's life. Are you willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. You might not have to suffer the same way Mubarak does. But it's going to cost you. It may cost your time. It may cost your resources. It may mean giving up the American dream of how many possessions can I pile up? How much security can I pile up so that I can meet the needs of another? So that they might know and experience the love of Christ that God has for them. So I pray, brothers and sisters here at Highland, that as you look at Acts chapter 3, as you think about the hall of fame of faith of people in Hebrews 11 that conquer armies and yet also suffer through terrible things, but are commended to us for their faith. As you think on this, are you living by faith in the name of Jesus? I pray that God would give you sweet times this week, challenging and encouraging you to continue to do that. And that as people around you see you living by faith in his name, that they would come and ask you, 
what is the reason for the hope that we have? And that you, like Peter, would be able to speak to those even greater needs that exist in their lives. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that every time we open it, we have this opportunity to grow in our relationship with you, to be more of who you've called us to be, to rest in the wonderful grace that you have given to us through Jesus in Christ. So, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that um, as we leave this place, Lord, might we be effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all of those who are around us. And may people see, may they taste that the Lord is good. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.